typically I'm going to look for somewhere I can get away from people, right? At least they have some, some big, deep, dark canyons or big, tall mountains where you can get two, three miles away from people from the main road. Okay. That'll separate a lot, but it seems like this day and age, there's a lot more people pushing the, on, the envelope, you know, physically people are more physically fit. People have better gear, so they're able to go, but it seems like there's kind of a, especially like you talk to the Colorado guys, it's almost like they have to get back 10 miles. We got to get 10 miles from the trailhead. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a race to the furthest place you can get. Um, <laughs> but sometimes before you ever get there, you've passed a bunch of uh, great country. So welcome to the elk hunt podcast with myself, Cody rich. This feed is home to the best elk hunting podcast that I've done over the last seven years. And if you want to be a better elk hunter, then you're in the right place. If you want the blueprint that I developed after interviewing hundreds of the best elk hunters in the world and 20 plus years of my own hunting experience, check out my new Elk Hunt 201 course. It's a four-step system for doubling your success. It's a framework to give you a step-by-step -step system that you can build off of for finding elk, getting close to elk, and killing elk without getting lucky. Check it out. Link in the show notes. Alrighty, Dirk. Welcome to the podcast, man. How you been? It's been a while. Yeah, been good. Been good. Been busy. Been crazy yeah. busy the last month. Yeah, you guys are uh, kicking off a huge project. Uh, pretty stoked about it. Uh, John Gabriel and I work quite a bit together, so I've kind of seen some of the back end stuff. I haven't got to see the full thing yet. But uh, are you excited that the Elk Collective is finally like going to be out to the world? Yeah, man. It's uh, it's pretty exciting. We've been working on this since, I don't know, I think before the first of the year even. Um, we started formulating plans and then actually getting in and getting our hands dirty, you know, getting content ready right after the first of the year. And, and uh, man, it's, I'm excited to see people, you know, dive in because uh, we've kind of let a little bit of the cut out of the bag at our elk shape camps that I do with Dan Staten. Yeah. And, you know, everybody there is just like, pumped you know everybody's like oh my god this is it's gonna be perfect so yeah yeah no it's exciting uh we just last week dan was actually over in bozeman we did the elk uh sorry western hunting summit the elk one and yeah. uh so it was it's so cool I, you know it's it's funny because i tend to get wrapped up in this world of like talking to very successful people and forgetting the questions that my listeners want to ask or hear. Uh, and so I love these elk summits kind of like the uh, dance, uh, elk, uh, elk, elk shape. shape or whatever. Yeah. Um, where you get to talk to people and get like a feel for like what people, where they're, where they're at in the, like in the spectrum of elk hunting, you know, what they're struggling with and all these things. So, um, I'm sure much like you, you know, you get to talk to a lot of people, you get a lot of feedback. So, um, that was really big for us last week. And so I got a bunch of questions I'm going to pound, uh, pound you with today. But, uh, before we even get started, where can guys check out the elk collective and all that information? Um, we have a landing page right now, um, where if, if you want to go check it out, there's some basic information there. Um, kind of a, a place to sign up for your email mm -hmm. and you can even put in like, there's a place there where you can uh, check some boxes to let us know what you're interested in. Are you interested in archery hunting, rifle hunting, um, you know, all, all, all sorts of different things. 
So, and you can go to www.theelkcollective.com and uh, find that. And we're actually doing a pre, pre-sale, pre-season sale, pre, <laughs> pre-launch, pre-sale, if you will. And uh, it's $69 right now. Of course, it's normally $100 bucks for a year. And you buy it now, $69. Bucks. You set up, get set up for auto renew, and you're grandfathered in um, that your card expires. So for nice. that price. So uh, use a card that um, won't expire for a couple of years or three <laughs> or five or how, however long you got. But uh, yeah, that's, that's where you can kind of find the, the basis of it uh, right now. Um, we've got social media platforms as well, um, Instagram and Facebook, and we do have a YouTube channel. There's not a lot on the YouTube channel right now, but uh, slowly but surely we'll get more stuff on YouTube. But the bulk of the content will be within the website. Yeah. No, awesome stuff. We'll put links down, links to everything in the show notes, guys. So check it out. Uh, I highly recommend it. I've kind of seen a lot of the back end on this. Very, 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 very well put together. Um, so I do think you guys are going to get a ton of value out it. Uh, I haven't even talked to you since last year and I'm sure a lot of people have heard this story, but if not, I want to hear it anyway. Sure. Uh, the elk tab, the elk tab, the mouth tab year, man. Uh, what the heck? Like I, first off, I got to give you mad props for putting things together last minute and, and getting it done. I want to talk about like the, like overcoming injuries and things like that. But for those maybe who haven't heard yet or whatnot, uh, what's up with the mouth tab? Is that the new style? Is that what the kids are doing these days? That's what all the cool kids are doing. You know, you do it, do it for the gram. Do it for the gram. <laughs> it's all for the gram. <laughs> no, man. So I got hurt elk hunting on September 4th last year with, with Born and Raised Outdoors, you know, Trent and Steve. And, and we were in Wyoming and I was crossing a creek and, you know, the water was not even ankle deep, I don't think. But you know how you do? You hopscotch across the crowd, the the rocks. You say, I don't want to get my boots wet, even though we've yeah. got, you know, waterproof boots. And yeah. we we're kind of hauling ass trying to get out of there so we could swap or change places. And Trent was just right in front of me. And I was right on his heels, and he hopscotched across. across. And I had been just walking through the water because it was shallow. I'm like, no, I don't need to slip and fall or something because the rocks were slick. And, so anyway, the last rock as I'm hopscotching across, it was slick and I hit it wrong and down I went. And uh, I went face first. It just happened so fast. I went face first and I put my my right arm out to catch me. My left arm had my bow. So I kind of tossed the bow right at the last second. And, and But my left arm did, was unable to, to brace my fall. And I had a 45-pound pack on my back, my bivy, bivy pack. And my right arm took all the, all the, the, the weight coming down on it. And I heard a big old pop and I'm like, ah, dang, it kind of hurt a little bit, but nothing like out of the ordinary. I just, I couldn't get up. I said, Trent, help me. I can't, I can't get up. I was laying face first, you know, on the edge, on the bank of the Creek. And he came over and rolled me over. And then I was kind of like a turtle. He had to help me up. <laughs> <laughs> I took the pack off and, took my shirt off and I was like, man, something's not right. My, my right arm would not work. I couldn't lift it. I couldn't, I could move my fingers and my wrist slightly, but I could not like bend my elbow or raise it ab- above my head or, you know, so I had a hard time even getting my shirt off because it was hot, you know, it was like 90 degrees and I wanted to get cooled off because everything happened. It's kind of overwhelming. 
<coughs> so anyway, Trent packs my packs my pack out and my bow out for me. What a friend. We had to go cross a river and all that. And anyway, long story short, I to- tore my tore my uh, rotator cuff. Um, the the first doctor I saw thought maybe I had dislocated it partially, but uh, turns out I had torn the rotator cuff uh, about the size of a dime. The tear was, which is uh, I guess is about a third. I think is what he said. So it's a substantial tear. Yeah. So. I couldn't even lay flat to sleep though. That night, that first night after getting back from the doctor, I tried to sleep in camp and I could not even lay flat on my, on my sleeping pad. I had to go sit in the front seat of the pickup to even try to sleep. And I got a little bit, but I knew at that point there was no way I was going to backpack in and follow the the other guys around and, and uh, sleep on the ground. So. Were you just heartbroken or what goes through your head? Like tearing your rotator cuff day, what three a season? Yeah, I was immediately just like, no, that's just, you know, all your hopes and dreams have been shattered. Um, and you know me, I, I live for elk hunting. That's, yeah. that's my why. That's my, my that's the only reason I <laughs> do what I Get do. Get up in the morning. Yeah. Exactly. And now it's been just completely taken off the table and man, I was just devastated. So had to make the long drive home and I got home. Just and I, talk about a walk of shame. Oh Oh yeah. And luckily my wife was nice to me when I got home, didn't have any meat. And she's like, Oh, well, it's okay. And, uh, as she tells the story, you know, she came, she'd go to work with me sitting in my underwear on the couch and she would come home from work, you know, later that, you know, that night at nine o'clock at night, there I am still sitting in my (laughs) underwear on the couch. And after about four days of that, she said, are you going to just sit there and be a baby? Or are you going to, are you going to like, you know, quit sitting around in your underwear all day? I'm like, I don't know. I don't even know what I'm going to do. And she's like, well, you need to do something. You, maybe, maybe you can just go hunt maybe go call for somebody or go grouse hunting or something. I'm like, yeah, well, the whole time I've kind of been sitting there thinking about, you know, what could I do? And I knew about mouth tabs, you know, I, I'd seen Larry Jones shoot them. And I'd seen a few other Josh Keller, our buddy, Josh Keller in Montana. He, yeah. shoots a mouth tab and, and I knew it could be done, but I thought, man, it's gotta be super hard to learn how to do it. But I said, you know what? I'm not just going to go down to the bow shop and get my, my bow set up with a mouth tab and I'll start, you know, it'll, who knows? It's probably wrecked for this year, but, but who knows? Maybe I'll be able to do it. So I went down and my pro shop guy, Justin Grimes, he, we spent a whole afternoon figuring it out and uh, adjusting this, adjusting that, mostly the the draw length. And finally, we got it dialed in. And, and within three or four shots, it became very apparent that I was going to be able to do this. It was it was very doable and wasn't as hard as I, I kind of thought or maybe as most people would think. It's yeah. Yeah, more mind over matter. It's like you put your... <laughs> You strap in your mouth and you got your bowstring on your face and you're just waiting for something to blow up in your face, you know, <laughs> but, yeah. but it didn't happen. And once I kind of got past that mindset that nothing bad's going to happen, then I can start working on form. And after that's freaking awesome. Yeah. So five days after I got my bow set up, I was ready to go hunting. I'd, I'd been shooting, you know, short sessions every day, you know, three or four times a day, you know, four or five shots. After that, I'd start getting fatigued. So 
Um, I, so I'd shoot these short sessions throughout the day. And after five days, um, I was like, dude, we can, I can totally kill an elk with this thing. So camera guy, how many, how many pounds were you shooting? I started out with 50. Um, and I got up to 55 and, uh, yeah. So, so it, totally doable. Not that hard. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's so impressive that like mid season, I had another buddy that, um, ended up breaking his arm, uh, mid season and you know, Oh, it's over, whatever throws on a mouth tab and ends up shooting a really, really nice bull, uh, with a mouth tab, like last day of season. And I was like, man, that's freaking awesome. That's so and, awesome. Yeah, I know. Like, so your, your story as well, when you go, like you go and you're like, all right, now I'm out tab. Uh, and I mean, people can go watch all the video and whatnot, but like when you're like going to draw back on that bowl, what's like, are you like, this is totally not going to work or like what's going through your head? I feel like there's, it's a giant difference for me to like, Oh, I can shoot in the backyard with a mouth tab versus like, it just changes everything when you're about to draw on an actual bowl and go for the kill. Yeah. Well, I think, I think I kind of just, I, my mind was the same mindset when I'm drawing my bow normal, just, okay, I have all these little checklists, make sure you do everything just right. You know, hold the bow, right. Make sure your grip's good. Nose on the string, all these little, all these little things, the checklist changed to different little methods, you know, <laughs> the different thing, the different items on the checklist were a little different, but, um, it was the same thought process. I didn't think about like, I hope I can do this. I just, you know, pick a spot, go through my checklist, get that bow back and let her fly. So yeah, it's good. Don't, don't punch the trigger. Don't punch the trigger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't chomp your teeth. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the inverse of punching the trigger is yeah. when you have a mouth tap. I know. Uh, I know. You just kind of just let it go. <laughs> uh, well, congrats. It's pretty awesome. And it's pretty inspiring. I mean, like for anybody, like, uh, where there's a will, there's a way I'm telling you, like, and it doesn't always have to be like a torn rotator cuff. I promise you, if you're new to elk, I promise you're going to find adversity in the middle of season and it's about overcoming adversity and just finding a way to get it done. I mean, it could be this, it could be that. Like, I think we've all been, not all been in the mouth tab situation, but we've all been in some version of like, okay, like overcoming adversity to the point where it's like almost fearing season's over, uh, you know, I miss my chance and then you kind of overcome it and find success. Yeah. Yeah. I had a little inspiration too. My brother-in-law way back several years ago, he had broken a leg or something and, or no, it was his ankle. And, you know, we had lots of deer season left and he got on his crutches and he'd hobble around the woods and, and, uh, sit down and use his crutch for a, for a bipod. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, where there's a will, there's a way. I mean, you can do it. Yeah. There was a, there was a year I didn't get a hunt. I couldn't draw a bow back yet, but, uh, I had bought a wooden pair of crutches from Goodwill and spray painted them camo and was mobbing <laughs> around with my camo crutches in the woods one time. <laughs> Uh, all righty so we're gonna dive into some uh elk information some tactics things like that uh we're gonna talk i want to talk a little bit about kind of what to do now we're this is gonna come out uh be early july so we're gonna look at like what what if we don't have a tag or how do we choose general tag so um I'm hoping most people, I think Idaho is pretty much sold out by this point. So they I are. hope every, yeah. everyone's got a tag. Cause that's like kind of the default state. Uh, I guess Oregon, 
it's still open. So if you don't, I mean, you better think about hunting Oregon uh, general season. And even that's going to like, I guess they're uh, pushing to make all East Eastern Oregon. So all Rocky mountain elk uh, will be a draw. So uh, we're losing general seasons fast, but let's talk a little bit about how you go about choosing a unit or you would go about choosing a unit. I want to speak specifically with a lot of the general hunts. So say you have a general Montana tag, this can be a problem or choosing an area within that. Um, same with, let's say, uh, Wyoming. Uh, you know, a lot of these places where you're like, how do you choose a unit and how important is that? That's super important. You have to kind of know in the back of your mind, what kind of hunt am I going there to do? Am I going to go there to backpack hunt and bivy hunt, spike camp it, or am I going to go and truck hunt? Am I going to have a base camp? And then kind of, you know, go out from there. Uh, that's that's pretty important because you show up to the wrong part of Montana or, or Wyoming that's roadless. Um, you better be prepared to have, you know, long days if you're in a truck hunt. Truck hunt better be prepared to have, you know, super long days of travel or, mm-hmm. you know, be ready to, to uh, bevy hunt. So I'll, that's what I would look at first. Um, what What is your level of fitness? What is your idea of what the perfect hunt is you know is it is it uh, hunt maybe some of the front country you know a little more gentle country maybe you have an atv and and that's just you know that's what you're capable of your your hunting capabilities are and and for getting an elk out there's places like that but you have to you have to kind of know before you go so um the best place to find out those kind of things are like uh right on the forest service you go to the local uh, national forest um, on their website and get their travel management plan. And they should, there should be maps that show in great detail what roads are open, what trails are open for what designated use. And uh, then you can kind of formulate a plan around that. So how do you choose whether you're going to be, you know, you earlier you had mentioned uh, when you got hurt, you had your bivy or your bivy set up on you. You guys were bivying out. Like how do you choose whether you're going to bivy your truck hunt? Um, that kind of depends on who I'm hunting with, I think sometimes. So like I was hunting with the born and raised guys and, and they love to bivy hunt. Um, that's, that's just how they like to do it where you can go, you backpack in and you hunt with your backpack on you all day long. It may be a 40 pound pack. It may be a 30 pound pack, but you have your, all your, your camp, your food, your water with you at all times. And you hunt until the day's over and then you camp, which you can, you can hunt sometimes you can hunt some of the some really deep stuff depending on on what you're looking for when we're hunting in wyoming i have actually hunted that area quite a bit in the past and i'd always day hunted it um which to me seemed a little bit more efficient but um why do you say that i mean here's a great example of like you know, I go back and forth sometimes. Uh, sometimes it's better to keep camp on your back and just sleep wherever you end up. You know, you can follow the elk. There's benefits to that. But then I've, I'm also a huge proponent of like, hey, let's just day hunt it and I can be more mobile on the road. Why do you think that that particular spot, here's a place that you know you've done both. Uh, what are the pros and cons of each? Well, the thing is with elk hunting, some areas, if if you're just not overloaded with elk in, in the spots, you could bivy hunt in and be like, oh, you could spend a whole day trying to find elk and there's nothing there. And then you stay the night and walk out the next day and hunt your way out. You've kind of committed two days to that. Whereas yep. if you're day tripping it, 
you can walk in, hunt it through. Oh, well, there's nothing here. Or maybe let's say you blow it up. Let's say you go in there and you did find out, but you blow it all, you blow it all up, spook them off and don't kill nothing. Um, you're hiking back out. You're probably not going to hunt that spot again the next day. You're probably going to go to somewhere else. You're going to have your plan B or your plan C. Um, so I like, I like the mobility, um, for the just in case type of hunts where I don't know if there's any elk in there or not, especially here in Idaho. It's so wolf ridden, you know, they may be there one week and the next week it's ghost town. So I hate to commit, you know, that whole, the whole bivy style mm-hmm. or spike camp style for a couple of days, which takes more energy and takes more effort to pack your, your, your pack in your pack in a 40, I think mine's 45 to 48 pounds, depending on how much water I've got. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, on a day trip, my pack is under 20 pounds. So I can go trout, I can go fast and light uh, on that day trip. So I think, I think it just kind of depends on how well you know the area, how much faith you have that there's going to be some elk in there. Yeah. I mean, and if it's like, if, if there's elk over every ridge, then it makes sense. But if there's not, then, you know, like you said, it just depends on how thick the elk are. I've hunted in the backcountry in, you know, say the Bob Marshall or something where it's like, you know, there's not very many herds of elk. And <laughs> so like you get, you know, there's a, say there's one here, there might not be any more elk for five miles. So it's like, you can't right. just go in there, you go in there and blow them up. And then you're like, Oh, I got to hike five miles in any direction to even find more elk. Right. Whereas some areas like in Colorado, when we hunted down here, you know, bivy hunting seemed to, to be a good idea because the elk all kind of lived in circuits. They made these big circuits. So they were, they were one spot one day, but who knows where they're going to be the next day. So if you got your, your pack on your back, your camp on your back, you can kind of, once you get in pretty deep, you know, you can just kind of hunt that circuit country where you think they may turn up or where you might find them. Um, so yeah, it just kind of depends on, on the area, I think. Yeah. So circling back to like choosing a general area, um, it's, I know it's really hard to answer because it's like, oh, well, it depends on what kind of hunt you want. depends on your capabilities. How do you choose an area within a general? Like what's the things that you look for? Typically I'm going to look for somewhere I can get away from people, right? At least they have some, some big, deep, dark canyons or big tall mountains where you can get two, three miles away from people from the main road. Okay. That'll separate a lot, but it seems like this day and age, there's a lot more people pushing the the envelope, you know, physically people are more physically fit. People have better gear, so they're able to go, but it seems like there's kind of a, especially like you talk to the Colorado guys, it's almost like they have to get back 10 miles. We got to get 10 miles from the trailhead. Yeah. (laughs) It's like a race to the furthest place you can get. Um, (laughs) But sometimes before you ever get there, you've passed a bunch of uh, great country. So if you, I, I like to look at like, so here in Idaho, for instance, it, over the counter unit, let's say there's a big drainage. That drainage is five to 10 miles long, you know, and it's, it's roadless. You know, you have a, a road at the bottom or you have a road at the top. That, that looks like a really great place. You know, if I'm scouting on Google earth, I'm looking for, you know, of course I'm looking for feed looking for heavy timber. I'm looking for, um, somewhere they're going to get some water. Most places in Idaho have plenty of water uh, up North South Idaho might be a different story. I haven't hunted there too much, but, um, 
you can do some some e-scouting there and kind of plot your course and get away from the road. I mean, you don't have to go 10 miles deep, but I think once you get that past that one mile, two mile, three mile barrier, then you start getting into more games, less people. So if you had to choose, would you choose a more roadless area or more, uh, say, a mountain range with lots of roads in it? Um, sometimes I hunt areas that have both, right? Like last year where I hunted Idaho, it has both. It has a lot of roadless. It has a lot of roaded. There's big units, right? Mm -hmm. And the good thing is about the roaded and the bad thing about the, (laughs) the roaded areas is there's a lot of access. There's a lot of people in some places that like to use their ATVs a lot. It's not just sneak up there before for light and park it and then hunt all day and then come back to it at dark and leave. There's some places where guys get on their ATV and ride them all day from daylight to dark bugle from right from the ATV, you know, yeah, borderline ridiculous. So it's kind of hard to get away from some of those kind of places. Um, but the mobility, like if, if you just need to, to, to stay mobile, I like to be mobile. I like to, to, uh, if I'm in an area, there's no elk, let's say the wolves are in there thick. The wolves have been howling. No elk will bugle. I'm, I'm leaving. I'm driving 50 miles to another direction. Well, Mm. if there's a road in to where I want to get to quickly and then hunt from there, then I'm making the most of my time. So I guess (laughs) there's trade-offs. One thing, you know, you can look at back to that forest service management plan or state uh, road management plan. You can look and see what roads gates are open for what kind of use. You know, a lot of the national forest, they may have some old, old roads that are gated or, or kind of deconstructed, but you can actually quickly get away from the main road and get back in and not be bothered. So, yeah, no, it's always a balancing act and it's, it's tough because, you know, like there's things I look for, things I don't look for, there's benefits, you know, it's like, it's, you're always weighing certain things, certain aspects of each unit. Uh, but if you had to nail it down to one thing you look for in a general unit. And for me, you know, I even struggle to answer this question because there's not one thing I look for a balance of whether I can get away from people that not, that does not necessarily mean a lot of remote country, but you know, I'm looking for me, I'm looking for, can I get away from people, but stay mobile? So there's a balancing act of like, can I cover lots of different small spots and maybe also get away from people? Uh, and so when I look at a unit, say I, I pull up and I'm like, okay, this unit, it's a general unit. So I'm going to use Oregon, for example, just because I'm going to whatever. So if I can hunt the, all of Eastern Oregon, I'm balancing each unit. I'm like, okay, you know, this unit has a lot of wilderness, but I don't really want to hunt wilderness because I can't stay mobile. This unit has roads everywhere. Uh, you know, it could be mobile, but I don't know that I can get away from people. And I'm going to find a unit. It's like, okay, this has a lot of roads, but it does seem like there's quite a few little pockets here and there. Um, and the elk population is good. Those are the kinds of things I would look at if I was, say, looking at an Oregon tag. Is that similar to how you would approach like a broad spectrum of general season units? It could be Wyoming. Uh, it could be Montana, like whatever. Like, how do you approach that? Like, what's the one thing you look for? Yeah, it's, yeah, same here, that broad spectrum thing. But if I was, if I were wanting to hunt country where, you know, that's a little more roaded, a little more accessible, what I would look for in those kind of places is somewhere next to it that's very difficult terrain. Like, let's say, 
you know, a lot of times, a lot of times, a lot of this country in the West is checkerboarded. You know, it'll be uh, timber, timberland, uh, timber, private timber company ground, and then there'll be national forest or whatever, uh, BLM or something. And you'll have a big block of timber, and then you'll have a bunch of stuff that's been cut with roads in it, but maybe the block of timber has no roads. And maybe it's in some really nasty country, like very, pretty difficult to navigate. That's that's where my laser focus would go right to. It's like, okay, if there's all these roads over here, all the easy hunting's here, I'm going to push a lot of elk into these little pockets of, of difficult terrain. So that's probably where I would really key into. If you had to kind of lay a label on too far and too close, um, what's a good recommendation for guys who are kind of just curious, like what's too close for you? What's too far? You know, where's kind of that happy medium? Uh, too far as far as, uh, like, like away from a trailhead from, or pickup oh, or whatever. Okay. Yeah. I think if you're, if you're, if you get to 10 miles and 10 miles deep. Yeah. You better have some good hunting buddies. You better be tough and you better have some good hunting buddies. I mean, it's romantic as hell to say, yeah, we got 10 miles deep, but dude, you kill a bull 10 miles, you kill a spike bull 10 miles deep. You've got, you've got your pack, your pack. Um, you've got meat. And if it's just you or maybe another buddy, you got multiple trips. You got more than one trip and one trip out. You know, if you got three buddies tagging along with you, you guys can one trip that thing easily. You can one trip a five, six point bull with a level of difficulty, but 10 miles, no joke. I mean, it sounds like, oh yeah, 10 miles, but especially if you kill off, off trail, if you're, (laughs) if you've boondocked out away from the trail system, that's a whole nother level of, of, uh, of hard. So yeah, man, <laughs> even, even five miles, five miles cross country with no trails. I don't care how good a shape you're in. You're going <laughs> to, you're going to feel it. You're going to feel it. Yeah. You're going to remember that pack out. Um, the other thing about that is like, if, if your buddy kills, you know, or you kill first, you're getting three, like just hypothetically say you have a group of three dudes, you can one trip an elk. That's, that's a good system. I like it. Having said that, if you have a five day hunt and you, let's just assume you kill on day one, which like, uh, that's impressive. I mean, you're talking the rest of the day, almost half a day of work up and then a probably a half day or at least a day to get out and then a day to get back in or whatever. So like, there's a lot of time consumed, not to mention energy. I see a lot of people, you know, like go in a group of three, you kill one elk and then you're like, okay, now you still have to go kill two more elk. So it's like, how many times can you repeat that process? Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. And I've, I've hunted that group of three before, you know, me and two, two other guys and one trip and an elk with day packs, uh, with good high quality day packs. It's tough. It hurts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It hurts. So not only you got the time that it takes to get it out, you know, it takes a lot slower to get out. Then you have, like you say, you have to take care of it. Maybe get it to town. Maybe it's pretty warm out. You got to get it, that thing to town. You spend most of the day driving back to town somewhere to get it in the cooler and you get back. Now your ass is beat down pretty good from, from working so hard. Yeah. So the next day, you know, you may, you may get up at daylight, you may sleep in a little bit, but yeah, it, there's all those little things that people, don't think about so yeah i would especially bow season it gets so warm out i would try to stay less than 10 miles away you know that that five mile boundary i would say for most people would be doable 
but it still takes quite a bit of effort. For me at the five mile, like we need to have a serious conversation with the group about what we are shooting and what we aren't shooting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, yeah the spikes are, are smaller. Yeah, <laughs> gaps only. Uh, what is it like when we were talking about group size? Like, what do you feel like is the optimal group size? I had this question come up at the Elk Summit, and I was like, man, I'm a solo hunter through and through. Um, and a lot of that boils down to like my schedule is hard to replicate, or it's always been hard to find someone with the same schedule as me. Uh, I'm not saying solo is the ideal way to go about it. Um, you've hunted in groups of two, three, four. Like, what do you think is the optimal size? Um, three guys is good because. You get too many more than that. It's it's hard to fill more than a couple tags, right? Yeah. You kill three, that's doing pretty damn good. And and four in a week. Yeah, in a week. Yeah, ten days. And you do you trying to kill four bulls in ten days. That takes a lot of you know things to click in the right the right place. You know whether one guy kills, you get the thing in and out quickly, and the other the other guys continue to hunt. I mean, you have to have your your shit together, really. So, um, and I'm with you, man. I absolutely love, um, solo hunting. I mean, it's, it's, it's great because, you know, it's just you and your screw ups and your, your victories and, and, uh, but then it's just you sometimes packing. (laughs) That's, that's, that sucks. (laughs) Is there an option where we just be solo hunters until like the bull hits the ground and then we can not be solo hunters? (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) I've had that happen. I've had that happen. Yeah. uh, Yeah. a group of anyway. three is good. A group of three is good. Yeah, I you know I, that seems like I've hunted groups of three, and it's always hard um, to do. Do you when you set up a group of three, are you running two shooters and one caller, or you're like just hey one designated guy out front? Yeah, I, I like to like to have one guy that's a designated caller. Um, whether you've got your bow on your pack or you leave it at the truck uh, if you're mm-hmm. doing the day trip thing, um, one guy is just a definitely designated caller. That way he can focus on you know, pulling out all the stops to make sure that bolt gets in there. Um, then you have shooter number one, you have him on point out front somewhere, you know, you want to stay within, you know, I, I, I feel, I like to have my shooter within my sight, visible sight visibility of each other. That way we can kind of know what's going on and I don't lose them and they disappear. And then we're trying to find each other again. But, uh, but shooter number two, either have that guy right next to me or, maybe 20, 30 yards over the hill down on the downwind side, um, is good too. Yeah. Just like as a fallback. But the one thing I've done, and I don't really care for is like putting two point shooters out because then it's like a competitive thing and you know, people are making different moves or whatever. Like, I think it's uh, for me, if I was going to do it, it'd be like one designated shooter. One's like, Hey, you're the just in case shooter. And then if something scoots around the back or downwind or whatever, like at least we got a fallback plan, but like, Hey, let's focus on getting one guy, the elk. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't mind at all having uh, a shooter right next to the collar. Uh, I, I don't mind being the shooter next to the collar because. Yeah. That's every, a good spot. That's a great spot. Cause let's say another bull comes in, maybe, maybe the shooter out front set up in a bad spot. Couldn't get the shot. They wanted that bull keeps coming. Shooter number two has got a pretty good chance of getting a shot on it. So, yeah. And also I think as a caller, you tend to not focus, you're not looking around so you're breaking brush or doing that kind of thing. And so you're not really looking for elk coming in. I guarantee I've 
I've called elk to where they came enough to saw me saw me calling or raking or whatever and then left. I never even knew they were there. Oh, so yeah. I was too focused on, you know, being the caller. Oh yeah, definitely. All right. I want to talk a little bit about uh calling setups calling scenarios we're kind of diving into it already uh but cow calls versus bugles i the, i i tend to use a lot more bugles um less cow calls uh and over the weekend or last weekend we did this elk summit and a lot of guys had this question or talking about when to cow call when not to cow call i don't think it's completely useless i actually do cow call um not a lot but a fair amount uh i do use utilize cow calls um so i'm curious like i mean you're an expert caller uh one of the best there is when do you when do you use cow calls first bu- bugles uh and when do you feel like they're not necessary or like what's your take on the matter um i always use use cow calls um depends on how much so i kind of like to feed the elk the bull what he likes so if he's answering to one thing or another i typically kind of try to go heavy on whatever he's responding to the the best um but if he'll bugle at cow calls, I will try to feed him cow calls mostly, and I'll try to get him to vocalize. I want him to vocalize to my cow calls to where he's trying to communicate with these girls over here. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then I'll try to shut him up with my, with my bugle, you know, as an afterthought. Like, hey, these are my girls. Don't talk to them. You know, I try yeah. to build that kind of a conversation. And I don't know if it has <laughs> – I don't know what it means to an elk, but – it seems to work. It seems to work well, but I typically don't just go full on cow calls. Um, here's why I've had, I've had it happen a, a few different ways to where I set up cow calling, you know, bull start answering and then it'll get quiet. And then, Oh shit, there he is right there. You know, he snuck in on me um, yeah. to where I've also had bulls just lose their mind. They'll come halfway and then they stop. And then they just stand there and bugle and bugle and bugle. They want you to walk up to them. They, they, they've came halfway, but they really want you to come to them. Come, come to daddy. And, yeah. uh, and, and that can be tough. And I've, and I've tried, you know, walking right up on them, you know, blowing a, a cow call, just, you know, kind of excited cow, like, Hey man, here I come. I'm coming. Don't leave. And it's hard not to get picked off. I mean, even in thick country, I've done this in thick country. But a lot of times, once you start getting towards him, especially if he has a lot of cows, he'll start turning around and going back to his cows like, all right, you're coming this way. Come on. And yeah. if he's a pretty smart bull, he he may not leave that little comfort zone. He'll he'll get you coming and be like, all right, she's coming. And he'll kind of go back to what he was doing uh, and continue to bugle. So I don't know. I, I'm pretty heavy on the bugles. I'm always trying to, to get them. Uh, to fight, I want to. I want to appeal to their anger. I want to appeal to the the fighting side rather than the the breeding side or the loving side. Um, Would that change at all, depending on what you're looking for? Obviously, you tend to look for the herd bull. Myself, you know, I tend to look for the herd bull. And I know when I talk to a lot of these guys at these hunting summits and stuff, they're like, yeah, I would love to shoot a seven by seven herd bull, but I'm not going to let a five by five walk by. Like, it's just not going to happen. And, and I would be stoked if a five by five came to me, you know, and I'm always like, well, in that case, you know, if I'm completely okay with shooting a, a raghorn, I don't want to say a raghorn. I don't want to demean it that way, but like a satellite bull. I mean, I've seen some damn good satellite bulls, you know, a couple cow calls, they'll come right in. Uh, 
And if that was the case, would it change your perspective or change your outlook? You know, you get close, uh, say, say you locate a bull, but you notice that there's three or four bulls bugling in an area you slip in and you're getting bulls to bugle, but they're just not responding. They're not coming in. Um, obviously it's a, a few satellites around a herd, uh, you know, and you throw a couple cow calls out, bull screams. Would you go and play that lovey dovey route and try to suck one of those satellites over? I may try that for a little bit. Cause I'm always testing. I, I feel like every, every scenario, um, it's almost like a, an experiment. I'm, I'm experimenting, yeah. testing with them every time I make a call to see what is making it work. And if they start losing their mind with a couple cow calls, I may kind of see how that plays out for a little bit. Yeah. Um, before I, I try to go to plan B, but, uh, I've, I've had a lot of times where, you know, call in a lot of five points and four points with just normal, you know, get them pissed off. Um, I, and it's a kind of a scenario where a guy just doesn't walk around punching, punching bulls in the face. If you know what I mean, you know, yeah. it's, it's getting a bull to bugle and then slowly letting, you know, working that conversation up and letting his temperature build, um, until he gets so pissed off to where he's ready to fight. Yeah. I feel like that's far more common. I, I call in a lot of satellites and, you know, I, it, that's, that's to me is a far more, common scenario of hey let's get him a little bit fired up or maybe he is a little bit fired up but like let's match that and then work it up um you know i've had i I used to do it more than i do now and i don't say i don't do it but i have set up a thrown out a couple cow calls before i locate bugle just to see and i can think of one particular instance i was i was pretty deep in the backcountry and probably a bull that hadn't been messed with a lot but I just threw out two cow calls. I thought, hey, you know what? Before I cast out a giant bugle, uh, there definitely could be a elk within 100 to 200 yards of me. And I threw out, you know, just two soft cow calls and he fired up instantly. I was like, oh, that's awesome. And I waited maybe a minute, threw out two more cow calls, and I noticed a difference that he had cut. I literally did not get to move from the spot I had first cast that cow call out before that bull was on top of me. And it was a good bull. Um, I don't know. I know very few people that would pass on this bull. And, uh, you know, he came right into a cow call. I'll yeah. call it timing, call it whatever. You know, early. This was probably, I'm going to say September 7th, 8th-ish. Uh, you know, you do have big bulls that are cruising looking for cows. And and if you time it or you get lucky and it's like, hey, this bull just happened to be within earshot of a cow call, man, that can really work. I I used to do it more than I do now, but every once in a while I'll throw out a cow call before I locate bugle. Yeah, I'll do that too quite a bit. And I'll do a couple of really quiet ones because yeah. let's say you've been hiking up a ridge and you kind of pop over and now you're right at the edge of a basin or you're in a new spot where you haven't really called into it, you know, I'll, I'll call real quietly and lightly just in case there's one close by, you never know. You don't want to spook them, you know, because if you start yeah. <laughs> blasting a hyper hyper hot or something, then um, maybe that might be like, Oh, what, what was that? You know, kind of startle them. But yeah. uh, you go get up there and give a couple sweet little cow calls and, and then let it sit, sit for a little bit. That's, that's good. That's, that's a good practice. Um, before I ever make that location bugle and I don't always do it, but I try to do it a lot just to kind of see if I can get them to bite on a cow call first and kind of develop that rapport back and forth with the cow call before I start hitting them with a bugle. Yeah. Done. I mean, same, same. Uh, you know, if you could start that conversation with a cow call, I, I've had a lot better luck finishing that conversation than, than starting with a bugle. Um, you know, you're, 
that's probably a really hot elk. You know, if he's if he's bugling to a cow call, you get that bull that's four or five hundred yards away, and he bugles to a cow call. You got a hot bull, like yeah. that's a good one. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> and yeah. he he may or may not have answered to a bugle at the gate. You know, who knows? Um, but if you if I can start him on a cow call, I'll tend to like see how long that goes out, and then I might play in the bugle later, just as like a trying to seal the deal. Cause like you said, a lot of times you can't just run cow call from start to finish. Cause he's going to want those cows to come to him that last little bit. Whereas if you force his hand with a bugle and like add that complexity to this little plot twist in there, uh, <laughs> that tends to take it to the next level. Yeah. Yeah. I've done that a few times where you, you get them coming on that cow call and then at some point, maybe they kind of slow down, hesitate, or hang up and start bugling. And I've had them come right in, like be like, oh, man, I got to get over there real quick and and have them run right in. Or I've had them kind of, you know, move off too. Um, <laughs> just you, so situational. Yeah. I mean, yeah, try everything. I mean, I, there's no one that can say, like, here's exactly what to do every single time. I mean, alcohol have personalities and I, you can't, you can't preach that enough. It's like, you know, what works here may not work there. Um, and I think, you know, I always try to say like having multiple tools in the, in the tool chest is important because you're like, okay, I could try this. And it just because like, say in that situation, cow call, get him started. You bugle all of a sudden he moves off. It's not the end of the game. Like he didn't blow out of there. He didn't bump him, but maybe he'll go up the, you know, over the ridge or over somewhere and, and bugle at you again. Like that happens a lot where he's like still interested. He's just like moved off or maybe had more important things to do that day. Right. Uh, but you could slip back in and then you go back into that situation. Like, okay, man, maybe I don't try to just blow the bugle right at him when I get close, you know, let's, you know, see if this works, you know, raking or whatever. Right. Exactly. So let's talk about raking. One of the things that popped up over the uh, elk hunting summit, you know, I, I do a ton of raking. Lampers does a ton of raking. You do a ton of raking. Like, but there was a bunch of people that, had no idea or didn't know about it or don't maybe didn't know when to use it, when not to use it, uh, how aggressively, uh, what's your, what's your take? I mean, is raking kind of the end all be all or what? So yeah, raking it's, it's all got to wait to the right time. It's kind of like prom night, right? <laughs> you don't walk up and knock on the door and French her right in front of her dad. <laughs> That'd be like raking <laughs> as soon as you hear a bull bugle 500 yards away. It's not going to work. Things are not a little premature on that one. A little premature here. <laughs> <laughs> no, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta wait. And I usually wait till I get the bull. He's coming in pretty close and maybe he's hung up. I wait till he kind of hangs up. Then I start, start raking. Um, or a lot of times they do that hang up and they'll, they'll start raking at their hang up point. Right. Mm -hmm. So as soon as they do that, I'll do the same. I'll start raking. And, uh, I've had this play out so many times to where the bull will rake. I will rake then he'll stop raking and bugle. And at that point I cut him off. I don't, I barely let him get a. So you gotta be ready. I barely yep. let him get a bugle out of his mouth and I, I'm walking over the top of him. And then I go back to rake. He goes back to rake and I go back to raking. Um, usually within three or four of those little segments of, of cutting him off when he's raking like that, man, a lot of times those things will be like, all right, I've had enough. They've worked themselves up and do enough of a frenzy by raking they'll, they'll come right in. Um, sometimes not, they'll keep, they'll stand their ground and depending, depending on time constraints. I mean, maybe it's, it's starting to get dusk and you want to make the move on this bull. Cause you're afraid you're going to lose light and he's going to come in and bust you. And you don't want to 
have to try to get back there the next morning. Maybe you're going to push the envelope. Okay, so he hasn't came in. Maybe I'm going to move up halfway. So he's locked up 50, 60, 70 yards away. If I have enough cover, you know, or terrain features to where I can move ahead halfway, cut the distance by half, and then challenge him with a big old scream. And while I'm covering that distance, I'm breaking brush and popping every stick I can stomp on. Um, a lot of times that, that, that's it. Yeah. They, they know they, they think, Oh, that bull's going to finally show himself. And now he wants to see, cause if you ever watch elk fight on, on videos, right. They come out, they kind of eyeball each other. They do the parallel thing. They kind of want to look each other over a little bit before they just run in and fight. Hardly do they just run in and fight each other. Like, like dogs or something. They kind of want to size each other up. So if he hears you coming, then he's like, oh, he's going to show himself finally. Well, they'll kind of come out of their little spot where they're hung up and uh, can show themselves too. So, No, man, this is like solo hunter's best tactic, best ace in the hole. Like you need to be able to know when to rake, when not to rake. Uh, for me anyway, has been a game changer. Like I've... I've still never taken a frontal shot on the elk, and I think it's because I use a lot of raking tactics uh, to, like, in that last, you know, we call the red zone or whatever. Like, when it's coming down to it, I am making that bull rake or I'm going to rake. Like, what you said was, like, nail in the coffin. Like, it it can change that mood from uh, being standoffish or being his limit where he's not going to come any closer. Uh, They can get him fired up. Like, all these things. Like, so many times I have taken that, a bull that was kind of interested not really to, okay, now he's screaming or now he's coming or at a minimum he's raking and I can get closer. Uh, to me, it's been like the ace in the hole. Uh, it's 100% right, um, at least in my experience on on that. What's, um, do you use a stick? Do you use like, what's like actual techniques blowing down? Like how aggressive are you? Uh, what are you using? Like, is there a special like stick you look for? Like, you know, what... <laughs> You pack it around with you. You pack your shed antler with you. Yeah, yeah. Pull out a like a three hundred plus six point uh, off my back. Very important. Skull, skull and all. Break. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, I usually just kind of look around for something close by. I may have to, I may have to stomp around and break a a, a branch off of a, a fallen tree. Or there's been times I've ripped out a little little tree out of the ground, a little dead tree out of the ground that's small enough to where you can manhandle it a bit and start start raking. But a, I've even used pretty small sticks before, and I want to make more noise than it, the most noise I can. But sometimes you look around and you just don't have a good raking stick. Yeah. So I'll just go with whatever I can get. Or sometimes I'll even just take my foot, plant one foot firmly, take my other foot, and uh, maybe there's an old log or something there and some brush. And I'll just kind of thump my, my rake, my, my foot up and down that log and kick the brush around and, and stuff like that, maybe pick up a rock and throw it around and just making that illusion that there's a bull up there that's that's stomping around and, and raking. Yeah, I mean, same, same, same. The other thing, like, I've used, um, and I actually do like, I, I like using a big stick or, like, just going crazy on something, but when I try to get to that last little bit and I know either the bull's going to come in to where I'm standing or at least try to get him to rake a little bit, but I want to be ready. Like if I have a bow in one hand, um, cause the hard part with raking solo is like trying to rake and be ready and hold my bugle so I can cut them off. Like I need three <laughs> hands for this. Um, but using the end of the bugle, if I can find the tree that has that, you know, like a pine tree with bark, that's, uh, 
you know, real flaky or something that tends to make a real good noise. And I'll use the end of the bugle kind of behind my back. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's that little bit I need versus trying to, you know, two hand a four inch log that's eight feet long and break brush. Like leading up to that, I probably did that a few times, but if I move a little bit closer, now I can use the end of my bugle and just kind of rake and just make that noise just to get him to rake. And a lot of times, like you were talking about where he'll rake, he'll stop bugle and wait for you. You know, then I can start raking bugle whatever same thing uh i I can use that bugle and still have one hand on my bugle still have one hand on my bow and i'm ready to go if if things get western or uh come to fruition faster than i was anticipating yeah absolutely i've I've done that too before i hunted this place in oregon uh had a sled springs tag one year and i hunted this place that they had done a bunch of uh they cleared the property for for uh, fire danger. So they'd picked up every stupid stick off the ground. They'd limbed all the trees up to a certain height. You could <laughs> not find, I mean, 150 yards over there, there was a pile of sticks, but there wasn't a darn sticker at all around where I was standing. So <laughs> I had to do that where I'd rub my, my tube on a tree and, and yeah, it worked. It definitely did work. Here's yeah. a, here's a crazy raking story. So my son and I, he was uh, first year bow hunting. And we had this bull going one morning and we chased this thing all over. He never would stand his ground. He would just bugle and run. And I felt like, man, I just, I must be getting too aggressive with him because he had this really crappy, you know, ape-like quick uh, chuckle, you know, he would do. He's like, (laughs) it just sounded, you know, pretty immature, right? So the next day we, we got across the canyon and there were little, you know, it's kind of cut over timber. They'd logged in there, you know, probably 15, 20 years before, but you could kind of see in little pockets. So we, the next morning, um, we went over there and watched from afar. And it's like, all right, we got to get eyes on this bull and see where he's going, what he's doing. So we glassed him up and we found him and kind of watched where he's going. He went the same route that he went the day before where we chased him. And so the next morning, I'm like, you know, let's go back in there and we're not going to, we're not going to get super aggressive when he, when he vocalizes, I'm just going to make the crappiest bugle or, you know, chuckles that I can muster. It just, I'm going to try to sound like him, but even dumber. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so this bull, and he, he would finally kind of stand his ground. So we would, he would, he got up to this kind of this little ridge point. And uh, there was an old skid road that kind of went up to him and he kind of stood his ground up there and he could kind of see, he, had, he thought he could see pretty good, but if you kind of got off the swell of the ridge a little bit, you could kind of get out of his line of sight. So we kind of hunkered down and worked our way up and, we, and he would, he'd sit there and chuckle and rake. So I would chuckle and I'd rake and I had this big stick that was about 10 feet long, not super thick, but, but I would get that thing whipping and I would grab a sapling to where I could I could rock that thing back and forth, and I would whip that that stick around, and he could he could see that he couldn't see me, but he could see that. So man, he, that would I'd really get him to to chuckle in again, and then he'd tear after his his tree, and we worked our way up. We just kind of leapfrogged our way up to this bull to where he, he finally stood his ground long enough to where my my boy was able to able to kind of hunch hunch over and then walk up the hill a little bit and then slowly stand when he was raking, draw his bow and take the shot. And, uh, man, it worked, worked great and killed him dead. So <laughs> that's freaking uh, awesome. Yeah. So that was one of those times where, you know, I didn't, I didn't get super aggressive. I just kind of tried to do the old copycat thing. 
Yeah, man, that that's a dangerous copycat and then mixing the raking. Uh, that's a pretty dangerous tactic. I had one. Um, he was on the west side of Oregon, so hunting Roosevelt's and work up to this bowl and and in the evening and he was chasing cows out in the middle of a clear cut. Uh, and I had worked up to the point where I couldn't really do anything much after this. I got to, I was in a reprod patch, but then it was like one steep drainage and it was like kind of brushy bottom and it was just clear cut. So I'm, I'm going to say 200 yards, 250 yards away from this bull. And he's just, you know, up there bugling at me, but he's not, he's not going to leave his cows and come to me and it's getting dark. And I'm like, okay, last dish effort. And I just start taking like a reprod tree and I'm just waving it, you know, like raking it with my bugle and just waving and waving and waving. And, and sure enough, that bull scream, he look at me and he tear the ground up. And I was just waving and screaming and shaking that tree. And that bull dropped clear out of that clear cut, came across the bottom and right up to me. And like, that was like the deal sealer, man. He just couldn't take it with that bull raking next to him. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. I think if they can see that tree waving back and forth, rocking around, that just, like, yep. Oh, it's it's over they they know it's real at this point yeah it's almost as good as like seeing you know an elk you know they're always looking to see that elk and if they can see that that tree shaking they know it's right there and it's yeah. like it they just can't resist it it's like a bull's <laughs> raking in the tree <laughs> um yeah great tactic uh already man well what's up this year like what you got how many tags how many you got a big plan not yeah. break your shoulder yeah yeah first off don't break shoulder <laughs> be able to draw a bow which I've first plan. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been drawing my bow shooting it. I got a 55, 60 pounds. Now I've got my hunting bow at 70. I can draw it and shoot it, but I'm trying to work my way up, you know, with the lighter, lighter weight. But, um, I got a tag for New Mexico with, uh, John, uh, Gabriel and Jason Phelps. We're all going to New Mexico. Um, and then I have a tag for Montana, good old Montana and, and Trent Fisher from born and raised. He drew a Montana tag too. So his, his tags in for a different spot than mine is. So I'm going to go with him for 10 days and hunt. And then he's going to come over with me and try to finish off the, the rest of the season there in Montana for archery. Heck yeah. And uh, man, that's going to be awesome. Then the good old Idaho, but I'm not going to be able to hunt anywhere I've ever hunted before this year. That's my tentative plan. So I've got <laughs> tons of e-scouting to do, which, which I'm going to document all this e-scouting for, for the elk collective that way uh they can see how you know i'm going to pick apart the areas and kind of key into the spots i want to go to and and so it should be good it should be good so i can't wait it's gonna be awesome sounds like a good year is there anything um i'll be heading down to new mexico this year as well i don't have a tag but um what uh one of my patreons drew uh a new mexico tag we're going hunting down there um do you foresee any difference i don't know if you've ever hunted down there or if you your tactics change for, you know, those Southwest elk versus, you know, the Northern Idaho. Yeah. I've never hunted the Southwest. Um, but I know a lot of guys who have, and they say cow call is the game down there, you know, rather than so much bugling. So I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to experiment with that. I'm going to go ahead and, and take people for their word. And, uh, like John Gabriel, he was down there last year and he filmed and did some calling. He said, yeah, the, using a bugle, get them, get them to, you know, locate with a bugle if they're not already bugling on their own. But, uh, but he said, man, an open read cow call is just money. They love those things down there. Yeah. I've heard that as well. That's one thing I've kind of taken into consideration. Like my game will probably shift from a lot of, aggr- I mean, not a lot of raking going on down there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I similar, I've heard, you know, cow calls are definitely like 
you know, that sweet talk in the last few feet uh, is kind of the way to go versus the aggressive bull, you know, bugle and challenge bugle and all that. So, you know, different, different areas definitely take different tactics and, you know, we're talking about how great raking is, but I, I, I don't anticipate a lot of, you know, working into their bedroom and raking, uh, going yeah. on in New Mexico. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, yeah, it'd be an interesting year, man. Uh, we'll have to catch up and, uh, touch space on notes and things like that, but best of luck this year. Where, yeah, uh, one, one final thing, I guess we'll, I'll put links in the show notes, go check out the L collective. Uh, it's a, one thing we didn't mention is this is a giant, well, it's a group of guys that is more than just Dirk. Uh, there's a lot of people that have put information into the Elk Collective and that was kind of why it was the Elk Collective, taking a lot of different opinions, a lot of different approaches and bringing them all together into one place. Uh, it's going to be a pretty sweet thing. And not to mention the other thing that didn't get mentioned earlier is that I think this is probably one of the first courses that is done more with rifle i know you guys have plans probably not done yet but have plans to like incorporate a lot of rifle hunting uh and tactics and things like that because i know almost all information that gets put out on these podcasts and and wherever it you know platform it goes to tends to be a lot about archery elk hunting yeah yeah and right now the course is, is ultra um archery heavy but eventually yeah when when we get when we get our guys lined out, we're going to definitely have some rifle hunting tactics and stuff in there too. Cause, um, yeah, not everybody bow hunts. Yeah. And I think it's actually becoming more common that dudes do both. Uh, yeah. or like, you know, myself, like, yeah, archery hunt, but I also, I tend to like to have at least one rifle oak tag, uh, yeah. if I can keep one. So like doing both, <laughs> it's not like, I don't know. It's funny that it used to be such like you had to choose, but also that was probably in the days when people only hunted their home state, you know, like elk hunting was like where you lived. Uh, right. nowadays, most guys are two or three tags, two, or three States. Uh, at least the guys I know and, you know, they're traveling and doing elk hunting wherever they can get a tag. Yeah. Yeah. I don't discriminate, man. I, I just want to be elk hunting. I don't care if I'm using a bow or a rifle or heck, I'd even try a muzzleloader, you know, for elk to be, be awesome. I just, I love hunting elk. That's right. All righty, Derek. Well, thank you so much. Uh, everybody go check out the elk collective. Um, and appreciate it, man. Good luck this year. If you want the blueprint that I developed after interviewing hundreds of the best elk hunters in the world and 20 plus years of my own hunting experience, check out my new Elk Hunt 201 course. It's a four-step system for doubling your success. It's a framework to give you a step-by-step -step system that you can build off of for finding elk, getting close to elk, and killing elk without getting lucky. Check it out. Link in the show notes.